Nobody's got it better than Michigan, not after Monday's national championship. Jim Harbaugh gets his title. Michigan goes undefeated. All that uh, off-the-field turmoil, the NCAA investigations, those stood aside for the day on Monday as Michigan dominated Washington in Houston, and Alabama is left to wonder what could have been. Georgia is left to wonder what could have been. Welcome into SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. John, as I was watching that game Monday, I thought for most of the performance, it was um, more one-sided than the score indicated. Washington hung around, hung around. I thought the final score, three touchdowns, more accurately reflected uh, the, the style of play throughout the way. But I also thought, Boy, if, if Alabama could have got a fourth down stop in that game-tying drive in the Rose Bowl late in the fourth quarter, they might have been the national champions. And I, and I thought, if Georgia had won in Atlanta, what could they have done in this playoff? What were your thoughts as, as you watched this championship game? You're right about it was a one-sided game. Even when the score was close, it was a one-sided game you got the impression that Washington was just trying to hang on that what Washington, I watch out Washington a lot this season and what Washington did well, it wasn't doing, it wasn't doing in that game. And that was apparent early. And I think I sensed that and maybe I, I found myself losing interest in that game really fast. I think I part too. of yeah. it was that because I saw where the game was headed and also it was because uh, SEC team wasn't in it. I mean, we cover the SEC. It's natural to think that way a little bit. But also it's because the SEC had won 13 of the previous 17 national titles. So uh, I, I just really, you know, it was weird to see somebody win a championship and not have to beat uh, an SEC team. Georgia – I still go back. I mean, we talked about this going into the playoff. Georgia didn't even make the playoff. But one of the four best teams, everybody knew it was one of the four best teams. And I think if it would have been in there in the playoff, I would have picked Georgia to win the whole thing, just like it did the previous two years. And I want to I want to get into that a little bit deeper here in a moment, John. But one of the things that struck me about this national championship for Michigan, and I thought – Scandal aside, and, and maybe you can't put that scandal aside, but it's our podcast, and I think for the moment we'll put the scandal aside. You put that aside, this was a deserving national champion. They didn't face the toughest schedule for the first couple months of the season, but then they beat Ohio State, they beat Alabama, they beat Washington. They're a deserving champion, again, with the scandal aside. But what struck me about their team this year was you know, if we go back and think about those championships from a few years ago, you had Joe Burrow with a generational type season at quarterback for LSU. All those weapons he had around him on that LSU offense. LSU's defense that year was okay. It wasn't, you know, dominant. It was okay. It really won with Joe Burrow and its offense. And then the next year, the 2020 COVID season, Alabama wins in just a blur of points with Mac Jones at quarterback, Devontae Smith and others at wide receiver, Najee Harris in the backfield. I mean, that title was a little bit different from others in Saban's reign. The defense was good, but it wasn't winning on the backs of its defense. It was winning with offense. And it 
felt like the game was going maybe more in that quarterback-oriented, spread offense, up-tempo direction. And now we have three straight champions, Georgia back-to-back and Michigan this year. Now, I know Georgia's offense was really good last year. That was a well-rounded team. But if you go back to Georgia's first national championship and now Michigan, those were teams built on defense that won with their offensive and defensive lines first and foremost. And I'm wondering if we moved on, when I say we, I think as kind of an industry, experts, pundits, media, even coaches. I think they they moved on a little bit from the physical brand of ball, fell in love with the the quarterbacks and the glitz and the glamour. And I don't think the sport's on the verge of returning to three yards and a cloud of dust. However, I do think that this season is proof that if you got the nation's best offensive line, which I think Michigan did, and if you have a defensive front that is highly disruptive, which Michigan's is, that puts you on the short list of national championship contenders. I look at Michigan... And I see an SEC team. I didn't see that. The 2019 LSU team wasn't a typical SEC team. Neither was the 2020 Alabama team. But those Georgia teams were. And you look at Michigan, lost a great offensive lineman to injury. And still had a tremendous offensive line. And just to watch that blocking unfold on the replays was fascinating, really. The way those guys were just, they were headhunting out there. They were making contact and they were going into past the line of scrimmage looking for somebody else to knock over. Uh, I love really good offensive line play. Washington won the Joe Moore Award as having the best offensive line. Michigan had won it before. But we saw last night who had the best offensive line. Even without it's All-American it still had the best offensive line. And that was just a, a brutal example of physical football prevailing both sides of the line of scrimmage. And really what it tells us, Blake, it doesn't matter what's fashionable or what seems to be working. If you can dominate the line of scrimmage, you can win a championship. Uh, it doesn't matter how, how fast you score or how you score. But if you can do what Michigan did like that, you can beat anybody. And I think, as you as you mentioned, Georgia was kind of – it was a well-rounded team. It could do a little of everything. But it could control the line of scrimmage, too, in winning the 21 and 22 uh, championships. And I think what this sends a message to the rest, rest of college football, uh, you don't have to run an up-tempo spread. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have – first-round draft picks at wide receiver. LSU had that. They had a first-round draft pick, quarterback, wide receiver, two both wide receivers. They had they had a team for today, but LSU lost three games. And Michigan didn't lose any. And even though I said – I just want to make this clear. Even though I said I thought Georgia could want, have won the national title if it had been in the playoff, that's just a guess. Michigan did win it, and I want to really give credit to Michigan because it just lined up, and it took – it was so well-prepared for that game. It was well-prepared for the Alabama game, and it just went out there and and did its thing, and it's a a great football team. It's just not 
what we've been more accustomed to seeing recently other than Georgia. Yeah, and it almost makes me think, like, if you could hand me, like, a Joe Burrow quarterback and, and say, you can have this guy and and the the defense will be good but not great, or you could have, you know, those those beasts at the line of scrimmage like Michigan had on both sides of the ball, maybe I would take Joe Burrow in a good, not great defense. But shy of, like, a a Joe Burrow type of quarterback. I think if I'm getting the good, not, not generational quarterback and, and really, really good at the lines of scrimmage, I still, I still like my chances. In other words, if you're not going to be just absolutely dominant at the line of scrimmage, like Michigan was this year, like we've seen Georgia at times during its, its two national championship runs, you better have a generational type of quarterback. And I, and I almost think it's harder to get that in a way than it is to to be good up front. Although we've seen Alabama get away from this the last few years, right? I mean, it won in 2020 with that great offense, but it hasn't been able to reproduce that offense six, since Max, Mac Jones and, um, and, and all that supporting cast left. It hasn't been able to replicate that. Even as good as Bryce Young was, his supporting cast wasn't good enough for Alabama to replicate what it did in 2020, also, let's face it, that was the COVID year. I think a lot of defenses seemed like they were quarantined throughout that whole season, right? There wasn't a lot of defense going on that year. But in the years since then, Alabama hasn't been able to replicate it, and we're seeing other teams, Michigan the latest now, win with that style of football that Bama won with at the peak of Saban's dynasty. I mean, there was a stretch of the game Monday where I thought Michigan, if it wanted to, could almost go into the mode it did against Penn state where it didn't even pass the ball throughout most of the second half. I mean, there was a stretch of that game Monday where I thought they're better off if JJ McCarthy, if they just don't even have him throw it, just hand the ball off to Blake Corum and Donovan Edwards and let McCarthy uh, run on a couple quarterback keepers and don't even bother putting it in the air. Um, Now they needed McCarthy to beat Alabama. He was clutch in the key moments in that Rose bowl, but First and foremost, this was a team built at the line of scrimmage. They were ball hawks on defense. They valued the ball on offense. They limited mistakes, and they had a bell cow running back. And that, to me, sounds like throwback Alabama. The irony is Alabama this year had hoped to become throwback Alabama. That was Nick Saban's mission this year. He talked about that in the preseason. Alabama really didn't become that. Michigan did, and they were the ones winning the championship. I wonder how much the transfer portal factors into this now in NIL deals. Uh, you may get one of those super quarterbacks. I, I mean, you can't call him a generational quarterback because you can't get a generational quarterback every year. They're not generational. <laughs> right. <so. laughs> but in the transfer portal, uh, the offensive line to me is so much about cohesiveness it helps to have guys that are accustomed to playing together. And uh, although Michigan, <laughs> Michigan won without a great offensive lineman, it plugged another guy in there. And they so, had two transfers on that starting offensive line on yes. Monday night. They were, they were all five fifth year seniors, John, and two of them were transfers, such a veteran group, but they did have two transfers in there. So maybe I should say experience in the offensive line. If you can get those five year guys, but I wonder if teams that have a lot of NIL money, if they're thinking like, 
you know what? We need, we might need to spend some of our money on offensive linemen. We can get the best quarterback in the country, but if we can't protect him, he's not going to be a superstar. He's going to be a target. He's going to get hit way too much. And I also wonder if we see teams now, teams are so accustomed to playing with five DPs and, and sometimes six, and we see that three, three, five defense occasionally. Uh, you have things go in cycles. Okay, they want to line up like that, and they put all those DBs in there. Okay, we're going to we're gonna go all out with our offensive line. We're just going to pound people, which is what Michigan can do. And it showed you running backs have been devalued in this era. They're devalued in the NFL draft, and they're devalued um, in NIL money. However, Michigan's running backs, not one, but two, look great. And maybe that, again, was like, yeah, if we have a choice between spending money on our running backs or our offensive line, let's spend it on the offensive line and we'll turn – we'll get a bunch of 100-yard rushers. We won't just have one. So I just think – I'll be real, really curious to see if if this has a – a long range effect on college football. And maybe I'm, you know, maybe this is a, maybe Michigan was just an aberration, but it looked pretty solid out there. And it looked as though somebody else, if you can build that kind of team, you could win a lot of football games. Yeah, I agree. And, and we pay so much attention to what quarterbacks teams are getting out of the portal, what wide receivers, maybe a, a good cornerback. Maybe we ought to be paying a little more attention to uh, the offensive linemen that uh, teams are getting out of the portal. Now, you don't always see the linemen go in, I think, with the rate as some other positions. Um, I don't think it's just that we're not monitoring it as closely. I, I think some of the best linemen are more likely to stay put where they're at. But we did see Michigan get a couple good ones out of the portal, and and it that's something I think worth monitoring going forward is our teams maybe going to be willing to spend more of their NIL dollars to your point about locking down some of the top offensive linemen in response to what we saw Michigan do. We, we talked about Georgia, John, and, and I don't really want to, and you were, you were careful about this and I agree with you. I don't really want to take away from what Michigan accomplished, but in hypothetical land, if Georgia and Michigan had both made the playoff. Let's say Georgia doesn't have that poor performance in Atlanta. They beat Alabama to win the SEC championship. They meet in the national championship game, number one versus number two. I think I would still pick Michigan in that game. I I thought, having seen this play out, I thought Michigan was a little bit better at the line of scrimmage, more like what we saw from Georgia the past couple years. Now, if Georgia's fully healthy with Brock Bowers, Ladd McConkie, it might be a little more dynamic on offense. It, I mean, you play it 10 times, it's going to be a split decision, right? But I, I think of the two in a head-to-head I'd, on a neutral field, I'd probably still give the, the edge to Michigan. Which way would you tilt? I would go with Georgia, but that would be based on what you said. I mean, a healthy Brock Bowers. I think if if Georgia had a healthy Brock Bowers, a healthy lad McConkey, McConkey was hurt most of the year, played on and off, it would have beaten Alabama. 
And uh, I look at how, I mean, we're talking about how great Michigan looked mm-hmm. uh, last night, but Monday night, but thinking back, how good did it look against Alabama? Even though Alabama beat Georgia, I still see Georgia as a better team. It's much more diverse offensively. So I would probably favor, I would give an edge to uh, Georgia in that, in that matchup, but I, I wouldn't be real. I wouldn't be really convinced of it. Uh, yeah, I think that, that betting spread would be awfully, awfully tight. I mean, a couple yeah. points in either direction. A couple really. of points, yeah. Uh-huh. How about, um, I mean, we saw Michigan beat Ohio State, so we don't need to put them into the equation. They beat Washington. They beat Alabama. We can take them out of the equation. I'm thinking of other teams that we would have liked to have seen go up against Michigan. How about a healthy Florida State? Since we're in the land of hypotheticals here, in our hypothetical world, Jordan Travis doesn't get hurt. So who would you like in Michigan versus a healthy Florida State with Jordan Travis? That's a really tough question. And I, I formed an early opinion of Florida State because of the way it dominated LSU in the season opener in that fourth quarter and won by 20, 20 or so points. But it, it's its schedule was not was not that rigorous for most of the season. The LSU game that was a nice win. It I really like Jordan Travis. I looked at Florida State as a complete team, and there were times where I thought this might be the best team in the country. Mm-hmm. I really believe that, but I didn't see it in this kind of matchup. I didn't see it beat Alabama in a semifinal. Uh, I didn't see it beat Georgia in a conference championship game. Uh, so it's just really hard. I, I think if they were playing, I would pick Michigan if those teams were playing. I think once again, I would give slight edge to Michigan. So I'm I'm picking Michigan in both of these hypotheticals against Georgia and against healthy Florida State. But I look at Michigan and Florida State as almost you know two sides of the same coin. I thought they were you know, at their best, two of the most physical teams in the country this year. Michigan certainly was. Florida State, we saw that oftentimes. It was its defensive front was really disruptive. Tons of sacks, TFLs, much like Michigan's was. Uh, with Jordan Travis and those wide receivers, Johnny Wilson and Keon Coleman. You know, I think they had some weapons on offense. They had a good running back as well. I mean, I, I really think that they profiled a lot like Michigan. They they were reminded me of Michigan more so than almost any other team. But yeah, I think like you having seen Michigan navigate this playoff, having seen them beat Ohio state, I probably saw them play at this level more times than we saw Florida state. That was partially due to Florida State's schedule. Florida state also seemed to have a little bit of a lull in their performance. So I think Florida state could beat Michigan, but I would feel a little bit more confident in the Wolverines. I think. Well, another factor in this, and you can't ignore it, is coaching. Uh, Mike Norvell's done a terrific job building that, rebuilding that Florida State program and contending for a national title. Unfortunately, not being able to play for championship and losing its quarterback. But I think Jim Harbaugh is a great coach. I mean, he's <laughs> that's uh, that's nothing to uh, 
you know, stop the presses about. It's yeah. uh, we still have presses, don't we? By the way, I mean, we're I not. There's a I few, digital, but we don't have our podcast produced on a printing press. So uh, I just think when I go back to that, I look at both of these games and the physical talent on the field, and Michigan was obviously very talented. But I look at how well-prepared Michigan was for what Alabama did and what what Washington did. Because coming into the playoffs, you looked at Alabama and you thought, Jalen Milrow, he's really scary. He's just a, he's one of the best runners in the country, regardless of positions, and he throws a nice deep ball. What did Michigan do? It took away the deep ball, and it – it pressured Milrow quite a bit, but didn't allow him. It minimized his great runs. It it, it didn't let Jalen Milrow beat it, not even close, even though the game was close. And I thought the, the metaphor for that was on the last play when Alabama sent Milrow into the line and run through the Michigan defense didn't work out. And also against Washington. I thought Washington might win the game. I thought, well, Michigan's never seen a team like this. It hasn't seen a team with this kind of skill and a quarterback right? like Washington had. I thought Ohio State had had the skilled wide receivers, but it didn't have this kind of system, and it didn't have Michael Penix at quarterback. So I thought, well, Michigan's coming. Michigan's getting ready to see a different kind of team than it's seen all year. But it didn't look that way at all. And to me, that has a lot to do with coaching. It looked like we're ready for this stuff. And it was. Speaking of coaching, John, uh, we'll change gears here. We mentioned Alabama earlier, how close they came to beating Michigan, even though Michigan outplayed them for most of the game. But Nick Saban, surprise, surprise, has a coordinator vacancy seems like there's at least one every offseason. But this one uh, comes from a reported retirement. ESPN has reported that Kevin Steele, the veteran defensive coordinator who returned, reunited with Nick Saban last offseason. According to ESPN's reports, Kevin Steele will be retiring, creating another vacancy that we see Nick Saban have to fill so often. Oftentimes it's more on the offensive side. He's kept defensive coordinators longer traditionally, but now we're seeing this will be the third defensive coordinator in a three-year span for Nick Saban. You go back to Pete Golding, then Kevin Steele, and now whoever comes next. Now, there's a chance it could be an internal candidate, Travaris Robinson, an assistant coach on Saban's staff. He's been a defensive coordinator in the past, was the DC at South Carolina. And if you remember, Lane Kiffin, made the comment, wasn't proven, but Lane Kiffin's assessment was that Travaris Robinson was actually calling the defense last year in a, in a comment that um, drew some some attention and controversy before that Ole Miss-Alabama game. So if, there, if there's a chance for an in-house option, that would seem like the most obvious choice for Nick Saban. If he goes outside of the walls, a name that keeps coming up, John, we don't we haven't seen him back on a sideline yet. Is Jim Leonard, the former Wisconsin defensive coordinator who was uh, like the toast of college football just a couple years ago, did not get the Wisconsin head job and uh, parted ways with, with Wisconsin. 
after they went with uh, Luke Fickle as their head coach. He was an analyst last year at Illinois, but you know he's going to be back in a defensive coordinator role sometime here in the future. And then Zach Arnett, the former Mississippi State coach who had been a successful defensive coordinator, uh, he's known for that three-three-five defense. A question of whether you know Nick Saban would want to commit to that. Those are a couple names that would occur to me outside of the building if Saban goes in a different direction from Travaris Robinson. But how important do you think this hire is for Saban, John? I tend to think that what Alabama does on its offense and with Tommy Reese maybe is the the bigger storyline of the offseason. I thought Tommy Reese was pretty up and down in his uh, first season as Alabama's offensive, offensive coordinator. He's got a lot of work to do, I think, in uh, fortifying that offensive line giving Jalen Milrow a couple more weapons, but a notable uh, spot open here on, on Saban's staff. What's uh, what's your level of importance here on this hire? Uh, well, yeah, a defensive coordinator is important with, with any program, particularly one where your, your goal is to win a national championship, not just make the playoff. But you always have to come back to the, you know, to the, to the root of this. I mean, this is Nick Saban's defense. And you're not coming in there and, and changing up the defensive philosophy or system. Sure, Nick Ch- Nick is famous for making uh, – he's changed with the games. He's changed with, with the game. He's changed with the rules. But some a new coordinator is going to be running uh, Nick's defense. The new coordinator is a foreman. He, he's not the number one supervisor. He's a foreman. And he'll run Nick Saban's defense as he wants it. What he can, he will have the freedom to do things within that structure. But it's Nick Saban's defense, so it's not as though Alabama's having to hire an offensive coordinator. That's much more important under Nick Saban. Who's your offensive coordinator? Uh, so, yeah, it's somebody's going to make a lot of money because Alabama pays well. And what you were saying from the outset. I wouldn't be surprised if that happened. That's what I'd bet on. It's in-house. In-house promotion. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of think that too. And we're also, um, it was notable to me that when the report surfaced of, of Kevin Steele's retirement, I mean, you almost could have missed it, right? I mean, part of it was the timing of it, I think, with the national championship uh-huh. coming right around the same time. But there was no names you know, there's a couple national reporters whom we all know well, who normally when one of these high profile openings come up, whether it's head coach or a coordinator, a high profile coordinator position, you always hear about four or five or six names right off the bat. Maybe those names are being fed to them from agents. Maybe they come from inside the walls of the programs, but you really haven't heard much buzz. Uh, I haven't. I haven't seen much reporting around it, around Alabama's defensive coordinator opening, which it does tell you, um, it makes you wonder at the very least whether this will wind up being an in-house promotion. John, we're at the point of the calendar now, right after the national championship, where we get these way too early top 25s for the following season. And uh, I really look forward to your way too early top 25. Is there a, a tentative publication date for your too early, quote unquote, too early top 25, John? No, I keep it in house now. I used to publish it now. Oh, I just okay. kind of keep it in house. It's in it's in your head. Uh, I, I predicted I predicted the SEC, but I didn't go national. I guess that speaks to uh 
I guess I've become a little provincial, but that's where our readership is. So I, I put the SEC first, okay? Can't All right. That's bias here on SEC Unfiltered. Who would have thunk it? Anyway, I was reading uh, Pat Forty was, was quick on the draw for his uh, two early top 25, Pat Forty of, of Sports Illustrated. And I honed in on his top 12. John. And, and one thing that struck me was within the top 12, it is unsurprisingly dominated by teams from the uh, existing SEC or new SEC with Texas and Oklahoma coming in and also the new Big Ten with its upcoming additions from the Pac-12. And of 40's top 12 teams, 10 of the 12 were from the new SEC or the new Big Ten. And the exceptions were independent Notre Dame. And then the other one I almost overlooked, uh, he's got Arizona. So they'll be headed to the Big 12. He's got Arizona at number 10. But 10 of the 12 from the Big 10 and the SEC. Of course, we know, though, that the SEC and, and Big 10 can't get 10 bids to the playoff because you have those, uh, those auto bids reserved to tamp down how many how many bids uh, the, the Big Ten and the SEC can get. Of course, we expect them to get several at-large bids, but point being, I think this goes to show what we already expected is just how much that two conferences are going to take over this sport next year. Now, the SEC has been the leader for a long time now, but we saw this year just how much impact the Pac-12 had in the season. And, and it just really struck me how much change is going to happen next year with so much of the power being in two conferences. And I, and I still have to wonder, are fans going to like that, John? I mean, I, there are some things that are going to be good about this. We're going to get some new, exciting conference matchups when, say, Texas plays Georgia. I think people are going to love that. When Texas and Texas A&M renew their rivalry, That'll that'll do wonders for television ratings. But overall, I do wonder what John Q. College football fan is going to think of so much of the dominance, so much of the playoff representation coming from just two conferences. Well, uh, I'll put in a plug for college football in general. With all that happens with college football, a lot of which is not fan-friendly. It's not in the best interest of the game. Conference jumping, uh, hopping from one conference to the other. So it's, it's sad what happened in the Pac-12. However, the game itself is just fun to watch. It's very entertaining, and that won't change. And I think you, you we talk about rivalries, and that's always been an important part of the sport, but this will create new rivalries. I just kind of like the idea of Southern Cal playing Michigan or Ohio State. Or Ohio State. Uh, that's kind of cool. And I like the idea of Texas and Oklahoma slugging it out with the best of the SEC. So I think what we'll have is because of the expansion, if the t teams, the conferences stayed the way they were, we wouldn't be, we wouldn't be shelling out these at large berths to the Big Ten and of the SEC. I mean, the Big Ten is basically Ohio State and Michigan. Let's face it. What, what did the West Division have to offer? But now when you bring in Oregon, 
Washington and uh, Southern Cal, you can see another, you're bringing in historically good programs in the Pac-12. So yeah, that's going to, that's going to create uh, a different kind of Big Ten and give, I do think that will happen. I think the other conferences will need to, uh, they're not going to get at large bids. I think it will be very challenging for the ACC because we're talking about strength of schedule. And when I look at the 2024 SEC schedule, for example, a two-loss team with that strength of schedule built in is going to be hard to uh, kick out of the uh, playoff. Uh, we saw the you know the selection committee had no trouble working Alabama in this year, and and I think it, that will be the case in years to come. So, what these other conferences and we talked about this before our podcast, but what these other conferences have they have to look at it a different way. If you're in the ACC, for example, and you're Florida State, whom do you have to beat to make the playoff? Clemson. Just beat Clemson. That beat should be their, their motto. And, and yeah, because you don't have to worry about beating Michigan or beating Georgia or Alabama. Uh, same thing with the uh, with the Big Ten now. I, yeah, I mean, with the uh, Big 12. You've taken the two best programs, and it's not close. Oklahoma and Texas out of the league. So now it's like, okay, the third best program in the conference gets to go to the college football playoff. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah. And I think, you know, as I talk about, is this good for the sport? Like you said, college football oftentimes does things that's quote unquote, not good for the sport or good for the fans. But I do wonder with the the playoff being bigger, I wonder if, um, the Big Ten Championship and the SEC Championship will take on a little bit of a lesser importance. Now, right now, those games retain some value because if you win the championship, you get a first-round bye. However, as these conferences get bigger and the playoff gets bigger and takes on more prominence, I think rivalries will still rule the day, right? The Egg Bowl is not taking taking a backseat. The Iron Bowl is not taking a backseat. Those types of games are still going to matter as much as ever. But like the conference title race, uh, you know, we know divisions are gone, right? The race to win your division is not going to matter anymore. So I think that's what maybe starts to take a back seat in this new evolution of college football with these bigger super conferences is um, the rivalries still matter. The playoff matters more than ever. But and your other marquee games, in addition to your rivalries, you know, say this upcoming season when uh, Georgia and Texas play that that takes on a life of its own. Right. But I think the pursuit of a conference championship, if you're in one of the super leagues, maybe doesn't become as important as it used to be. And now it's more about just making sure you're in the playoff. Whereas if you're in one of the other conferences, the Big 12 or the ACC, as you were discussing there, I, I think the pursuit of a conference championship remains as important, if not more important than ever, because that's your, that's your avenue to the playoff. If you're in the big 10 and the sec, you don't need to win the conference championship to get in the playoff. You just need to finish in the top three or four and, and you're probably going to be in. Uh, yeah, I agree with you, Blake. It's um, it, teams out teams always state their goals, mm-hmm. not publicly, team goals, but the best programs, you know what they say, win your division, 
win your conference, uh, win national championship, or maybe make the 14 playoff but uh, before the championship. But now it's clearly, and I think it's clearly all about the playoff. I think that's how teams will see it, and I think that's how fans will see it. No one was going to say, oh, my God, we didn't win the SEC. Oh, no, we didn't win the Big Ten. Nah, no big deal. You're in the playoff. Congratulations. So mm-hmm. I think I think that's what that's what matters now. And I think you can't get one of those. Do you really? Yeah, I know a buy is important. But the main thing is getting there. It, we keep seeing things where the the NFL and college have more in common from one season to the next. That's become kind of a trend. And we'll see that now. I know you want to win your division. When you look at the NFL, you're talking about getting a bye, but you don't talk about winning your division so much. It's more or less you get a bye. It's not like we're division championships. Give me that trophy. I'll hold it up high. No. And, and divisions have pretty much gone gone by the wayside. Now we have just one giant conferences. And if you finish one or two in the Big Ten, uh, or SEC, it, it doesn't matter. You're in the playoff. As I uh, look over Pat Forty's top 25 here for Sports Illustrated, the usual or the expected SEC teams, I guess, jump out. I think most of us, you and I included, would probably have some ordering of Georgia, Alabama, Texas, and Ole Miss near the top of our SEC power rankings. And here's where Pat has them, John. Uh, He's got Georgia as his way too early preseason number one. I don't have much argument with that. He's got Texas number three, Alabama number four, Ole Miss seven, Missouri nine. So that's five from the SEC in the top 10. Then you go down to Tennessee is his number 12. And LSU is his preseason number 17. Do you have a gut reaction of of those SEC teams I named, someone is overrated slash underrated? And do you think he's missing any glaring omissions there? Is there anyone that you look at that should be in his uh, top 17, as I've named them from the from the SEC? The one that sticks out to me, and I've been firmly on Missouri's bandwagon all year, mm-hmm. was very much off Missouri's bandwagon in previous seasons. Uh, Missouri's overrated. Missouri's not going to finish ninth nationally. I'll I'll bet on that one right now. But they they return a lot of their offense. They bring Brady Cook back. They bring you know their two talented receivers, Luther Burden and Theo Weiss back. They have to replace Cody Schrader, the All America running back, and they've got some departures on defense, but. Is this more because they, you know, I mentioned the guys coming back. Do you just not think they can replicate what they did this year, next year, or do you see some of those losses as maybe bigger than than what I'm giving credit to here? I see those losses as bigger, uh, namely Cody Schrader. Yeah, he's Who a big one. Mis- mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean. M- what was Missouri's running game other than Schrader and, and Brady Cook? I mean, who was the other running back, Nate? Nathan Pete. <laughs> they didn't play another one by the end of the season. No, Schrader I mean, Cody was Schrader. Snap. 
I think he was I know he got a lot of he got a lot of credit and he led the SEC in running, but I still don't think he, rushing, I don't think he got enough credit because he carried the offense. It wasn't just the yardage he he produced or the touchdowns or the passes he caught was his durability. Man, that guy just kept coming. That is a huge loss. It lost one of the best players in the country. And I don't think it will come close to replacing him. And so that's the main reason. I mean, Missouri might finish in top twenty-five. Yeah, I, I would. I would have. Mis- I would have Missouri in the top twenty. I, I agree with you. I was pushing back on you a little bit there, but I, I agree. I think. I, know, but, <laughs> I, I think yeah. Missouri at number nine is a little high. I'd have them in my preseason top twenty. Two others that stand out to me, John. I, I don't have much issue with Georgia, Alabama in the top five, of course, and then Ole Miss with what they've done in the portal in the top ten. Understand that one. I'm struck by Tennessee at 12 and LSU at 17. I don't, I don't have a problem with either of those spots, but that, that is putting a lot of stock in Nico Yamaliava, the soon-to-be redshirt freshman starting quarterback for Tennessee on the heels of his nice debut start against Iowa in the bowl game. That's putting a lot of stock in him. It's also putting some stock in that Tennessee's going to fill some, some holes on defense. Uh, Tennessee's defense... You know, it was okay this year, but it sort of wilted in, in some of the bigger moments. And then LSU. I mean, we're talking year three of Brian Kelly, the uh, you know, the, uh, the highly paid, long long contract he got there at LSU. 20 wins through two seasons. I think that's a fine start, but generally expectations ratchet up in year three. And he's got to replace Jaden Daniels, those two NFL-bound wide receivers, his defense was a mess this year. I don't. I don't think it's unfair to see LSU at number at number seventeen, but I, I don't know that that would be meeting the bar in year three of Brian Kelly if that's where they were to finish. Might not be meeting the bar, but I think it's very realistic. I do too. Yeah, uh, Jaden Daniels had one of the greatest seasons in college football history. And he, and he had two first-round NFL draft picks throwing to. So you're basically being asked to replace your passing game. And I kind of like Garrett Nussmeyer, the heir apparent at quarterback, but there's no comparison between the two. He, he can't impact a game the way Daniels did. He can throw the ball, but he, he would, he would been, benefit more from a supporting cast because he can't recreate a thousand yards rushing. He would be, he would benefit more from having Malik Neighbors and Brian Thomas to throw to than maybe even Daniels would. So that seems about right. And yeah, I've bought stock in Nico Yamaleava. I just think he's the real deal and will have an immediate impact and be an immediate star in this league. And so I don't think, I mean, I think Tennessee, I would expect Tennessee to compete for a playoff berth. And I think that Tennessee-Oklahoma game in September at Norman is going to be the game for Tennessee. Got to win the, It might be the game for Brent Venables, John. Imagine if he lost that game to celebrated, Josh, yeah. Alum, yeah, celebrated alumnus Josh Heupel the uh, the blowback that would come from Sooner fans on on Brent Venables there. I think that's as big a game as the SEC will offer in September. Uh, for 
what you said. I mean, for both. I mean, let's face it. Oklahoma is not a patient program. And, and Brett Venables got off to a rocky start, rebounded nicely, 10 and 2, but he's got how, no 10 and 3. I'm sorry. So he's already got 10 losses. So he's averaging five losses a year. He doesn't need to go eight and four next season. Yeah. And, and, and I, so I think that, yeah, you, you bring in the hypo factor with the alum returning. He, he was the last core. He was the last guy that led Oklahoma to national championship. Hard to believe it's been that long, but, but it has been. So I think uh, that's just such a big game. And right now I think it's kind of a toss up, even though it's in Norman, you're going to have two uh, second year quarterbacks, First, you know, becoming starters, uh, Jackson Arnold with Oklahoma and Nico Yamaleava uh, with Tennessee. So that's a huge game. But, yeah, if you go 10-2 and two now in the SEC, be hard to keep you out of the playoff. Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, I agree. All right, John, we will be uh, we will be following all this throughout the offseason. I'm sure more portal happenings will occur maybe even a couple more uh, staff changes, and, of course, plenty more of those two early rankings lists, which we will, uh, I'm sure, react to as we look ahead to 2024. Thanks for all who listened to our podcast throughout this season. Uh, we'd appreciate it if you enjoyed what you hear. If you could go and give us a, a rating or review, click the subscribe button. Uh, those ratings and reviews help us find more listeners. John and I aren't going anywhere. We plan to be with you each week throughout the offseason. Thanks for listening to SEC Football Unfiltered.